which is good because Paul blesses them many times. He tells them, boy, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. And so he wants them to understand that this young church in this pagan city, they needed some practical counsel about their their responsibilities within their church. And every church is made up of uh, people, as we know. And he starts off, and we looked at this last week, we, we said basically relationships require responsibility, and the first responsibility are the leader's responsibility towards the congregation or towards the sheep, um, the shepherd toward the sheep. And we looked at that last week, and basically we summarize it. We said that we need to work hard to have charge over the church, and we also have to admonish the church. And then secondly, we looked at the, the church's responsibility to the leaders, uh, the sheep to the shepherds, in other words. And we said you have to know them, esteem them highly in love, and live in peace with one another. And now, today, we're going to be moving down to verse 14 and 15, and it's going to show us the church's responsibility, not toward the leaders, but toward one another, because sheep have responsibilities toward one another. And uh, next week, we'll be looking at some of those responsibilities, minister sensitively and live lovingly. But the main point of this section is that God will sanctify and inspire peace in his people that they may be blameless at the coming of Christ. And so we looked at those mutual responsibilities of the sheep to the shepherd and the shepherd to the sheep. But now Paul moves on to verse 14 and 15. And we're just going to be looking at verse 14, the first part of verse 14 today. And um, he's going to look at three different types of folks in the church. And I like MacArthur's outline here. He calls them the wayward, the worried, and the weak. (laughs) So that was kind of pretty interesting. The wayward, the worried, and the weak. And so I want to read for you verse 14 and 15, and then we can uh, continue on in our study. He says there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 to 15, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good for one another and to everyone. And so he's addressing, he says there, and we urge you brothers. He's addressing the church. He's telling the church, look, not only do pastors and elders have responsibility, leaders have responsibility toward the congregation, and the congregation has responsibility toward the leaders, but guess what? The sheep have responsibility toward one another. And I, I, it's very important that we understand that the church is a, is a uh, flawed <laughs> organism, it's made up of flawed beings. It's made up of people who have recognized their own sin. The church isn't perfect. Someone once said, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it because it won't be perfect for long. And you won't find a perfect church because the church is made up of sinners, people who've recognized their sin before a holy God. Henry Beecher said this. He says, the church is not a gallery for the exhibition of eminent Christians, but a school for the education of imperfect ones. We are all imperfect believers. Even though our position in Christ before God is holy and just and righteous, here on earth we're left in a flawed world with a flawed body 
and uh, sinful flesh, and we have to deal with that every day. And so we're not perfect. The church is not a place for perfect people. It's a hospital. It's a hospital for people who know that they need a Savior. They're sick. They're sick of their sin. And they've come to Christ to be saved. That's what the church is made up of. We would eagerly claim that the church is not perfect. Charles Morrison said this about the church. The Christian church is a society of sinners. (laughs) It's the only society in the world membership in which... It is the only society in the world, membership in which is based upon the signal, single qualification that a candidate shall be unworthy of membership. Do you ever wonder so many times you try to join a certain organization and say, oh, well, we have to check you out, we have to do... Now here, it, the church is made up of people who are unworthy of membership. Not one of us here today is worthy to be part of Christ's church. The church is full of problems because it's full of people with problems, frankly, because everybody is at the same level. They're all sinners. We're sinners saved by God's grace, but we are left in this unredeemed flesh, and we're called to cooperate and get along with each other, and we're constantly battling that out. And so the church grows in direct proportion spiritually. A church would grow directly proportionally spiritually to how it deals with with the sin within it. It's not a matter of question, is there sin in the church? There is. The question is, how does the church deal with sin? The process of church growth basically is is one that should eliminate sin from amongst us. Eliminate iniquity. Eliminate sin. And if the church is to move ahead powerfully and be all that God wants it to be, then it has to be dealing with its own internal sin. And every church has sin. And so our text here before us, in verse 14, Paul says very clearly here, he says, brothers, we urge you, we urge you. It's something that's urgent. It's something that's pressing on Paul's heart. He doesn't want them to avoid this. He's urging them to engage in something that will basically not be welcomed by them. It's something we tend to avoid. I put in there as a subtitle, the ministry no one wants. Or you could put the ministry everybody runs from. The ministry of admonishing a person within the church who is in sin. That's never easy to do because you're a brother or sister in Christ. And a lot of times when we find out about the sin, we tend to close our eyes or look the other way and pretend we didn't see it rather than do what the Bible instructs us to do, go to that individual one-on-one and admonish that brother or sister to deal with that sin. Most of us don't like to do this. I know for Ken and I, when we have to do this, it's one of the worst things we have to do. We don't look forward to it. It's frustrating. It's hard. Confrontation is always hard. 
As a matter of fact, I would even go as far as to say if you like admonishing people or you like admonishing a person who is in sin, you probably shouldn't do it (laughs) because there's something wrong with you. You're doing it for the wrong motive. But it is a very vital ministry within the body of Christ. And we all have to understand that this is very practical teaching for us from the pen of Paul. In spite of our natural inclination to avoid admonishing a brother or sister in Christ. I think without the, the ministry of godly correction, godly admonition in the Lord, many in the church would succumb to all the temptations that constantly bombard us. From the world, the flesh, and the devil. But there's something within us that says, wow, if I go do this, I could be found out. (laughs) And that's a healthy fear to have. Now, some of you may be sitting here, well, that's not our job, pastor. Elder, that's not our job, that's your job. You should know how to do this better than anybody, so just go do it. Why are you telling us that we should be doing this? Well, you're right. Admonition is especially the job of the church elders to protect the body. Verse 12, he points that out, remember? If you look back at point, or verse 12, he, he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and what? Admonish you. So it is part of our, our spiritual position and job to do that. But brothers, in verse 12, addresses the entire church. And I think in verse 14, he starts off the same way. We urge you, brothers, he's addressing the entire church here. He's speaking of the same group, not just the leaders, but the entire church. And so the entire church must patiently admonish the idol, as the ESV says. Some some translations render that word unruly. And it goes on to say, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. There's a lot of other places in the New Testament that repeat this. If you turn over a couple pages in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 15, he's pointing out here with regard to anyone who does not obey Paul's instruction in this letter of 2 Thessalonians, he tells him, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn, that's the word admonish, it's the same word that's used here, warn him or admonish him as a brother. So it has a sense of of warning to it. In, In Romans chapter 15, verse 14, Paul says once again, he tells us there in, in verse 14 of Romans 15, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct. That word instruct, I don't know why they translated instruct, but they did. It's the word admonish. It's the same word. Admonish one another. So he's calling upon the church in Romans 15, 14 to admonish each other. All the way back in 1970, um, man by the name of Jay Adams, you probably read some of his book, he launched what we know today as the biblical counseling movement. Before that, a lot of counseling, even within the church, was filled with psychological babble. You know, you go to a Christian counselor today, who knows what you're going to get? 
Usually, basically what they do is they take all the stuff they learned, psychology and psychiatric help and all that stuff, they, they apply that just because they're a Christian. And that's not necessarily good stuff. It's very evolutionary. It's very um, worldly in its background. And so he wrote a book called Competent to Counsel, taking the, the idea of counseling someone out of the profession's hands, professional's hands, and say, you know what? You can counsel each other. That's what the Bible was given to us for. That's what a biblical counselor does. If you ever come to Ken or I for counseling for whatever reason, we're not going to take you to a room and say, okay, lay down on the couch. Are you comfortable? And light some incense and candles and tell us all your problems. No. We're going to say, what's the problem? What sin are you battling? What, what, is, what are you dealing with? Interesting. Well, you know what? The Bible has something to say about that. And we'll go to the Bible and we'll point it out to you what the Bible says about your problem. And it's up to you to apply that to your life. It's called neuthetic, neuthetic counseling. And it comes from the same word here for uh, this, this idea of, of helping these people. Uh, Neutheo, in the original language, means to admonish. It means to admonish. And so he, he points out here, back to 1 Thessalonians 5, that this is something that should be done urgently. Within the church, when you see someone who's idle, or you see someone who's, who's going off the track, you might say, you're to address it. You're not to wait on it. You're to address it. And we'll tell you how to do that. But there is some urgency here. That word urge is from the, the original Greek language word that says parakaleo, which means it speaks of the Holy Spirit, actually, coming along, alongside someone, a helper, to come alongside someone. It carries the idea of providing help to somebody. So when you see a brother or sister who's not doing the right thing within the church, it's contingent upon the church who notices it, not to run to the pastor and say, Pastor, you got this going on in your church. You need to deal with it. No, if you already know about it, you deal with it. If you have some problem dealing with it, if you want some counsel on how to deal with it, then come to us and we'll tell you. When churches operate this way, it really helps. And so he says here, you need to zealously and eagerly encourage the brothers those who are spiritually healthy is the idea, to get involved in helping the needy. He already recognized that the shepherds had a responsibility to help people within the church. But here it's primarily directed to those who make up the church. He's talking to the sheep. He's talking to the congregation. And since admonishing one another is a ministry which the entire body, elders, pastors included, is engaged in, and since it's a vital ministry for the health of the church, we want to equip you regarding what this ministry is, first of all, and how it should be carried out. And so this is what we want to look at today. All believers are responsible to admonish those who are leading an undisciplined and disorderly life when you notice it. 
Now, to admonish others, let's look at our points here. I have a couple points here in your outline. First of all, we need to overcome some common excuses. Why aren't you doing this? Well, here are some that I just thought of. First of all, well, I'm afraid to do that kind of thing. (laughs) I'm not good at confronting people. I mean, you hear this a lot in counseling. Husbands and wives come into counsel, and you're counseling them, and, and a lot of times they're afraid to exercise this ministry of admonishment of the other spouse. Husbands will say, you know what, pastor, if I confronted her sin, she'd give me the silent treatment for weeks. I'm not touching that one. (laughs) And on the other hand, wives say, if I confront his sin, you don't know what kind of temper he has. (laughs) And so it just goes unconfronted. There's no admonishment going on at all. And usually the wives will say, well, the Bible does command me to be submissive to him, so I'm not going to say anything. It's funny how wives never bring, they don't like that verse, the idea of being submissive. You know, when the Bible says a wife should be submissive to the husband, most wives go, eh, I don't, I don't like that word. You know, to be honest, I don't like that word. I don't like to be submissive to someone else. But that's what we're called to do. But it's just kind of funny, they'll use that in counseling. We'll say, well, pastor, I can't confront him because I'm called to be submissive to him. Well, that's a cop-out, frankly. Many pastors are afraid even to confront sin within their own congregation when they find it out. They just look the other way. Because maybe they're afraid that person's a little too influential. Boy, if we lost that person, you know, if I chased that person away, if I confronted their sin and called them out, they might leave. So I'm just not going to say anything. I'm just going to, you know, put my fingers in my ears and la, la, la. I didn't see it. I didn't hear it. I don't know what's going on over there. They don't want to be responsible for it. I've heard over the years of ministry, pastors who are unwilling to commit adultery within their church because maybe one of the, the people in the adulterous affair were, had a lot of influence, could get the pastor fired, or possibly take a lot of the, the offerings with them when they leave. <laughs> That's why it's good to be in a church where I have no clue who gives what. No idea, and neither does Ken. There's like one person in our church, the person who handles the finance that, that really knows who gives what. And I've talked to pastors who are, are just surprised at that. You don't know who gives? Like you don't go through, I said, nope, I don't want to know. If I knew, man, it, it wouldn't be good. <laughs> because if you knew what people gave sometimes... I mean, I'm just saying, it would affect how you deal with those people. And I don't want to be any part of that. So rest assured, if you're giving to this church, the pastor, the elders have no idea who gives what. So we're not in fear of confronting sin based upon that kind of a thing. Or sometimes people wield certain influence. I know when I first came to Grace Bible, there were certain individuals who had a lot of influence in this church. And we had to deal with them. And it wasn't fun, but we did it. And the church is better because of it. You can't shrink away from that as a leader. And you shouldn't shrink away from that responsibility as a 
part of the church either. Secondly, some people say, well, I don't want to be judgmental, pastor. How many times have you heard this, right? And then they even quote Matthew 7, 1, right? Do not judge lest you be judged. That's what the Bible says. We shouldn't judge anyone. What? Are you crazy? Read that, read that in its context. It's one of the, the most misapplied verses in the New Testament. Jesus was not forbidding making judgments about another person's spiritual condition here. He wasn't. Because if you keep on reading down further in Matthew 7, he gets to verse 6, and he says, hey, you know what? You shouldn't give what is holy to dogs. And you shouldn't cast your pearls before swine. That's a command that Jesus gave him. Well, guess what? To carry out that command, you're going to have to make a judgment. Is that person a dog or a swine? So he wasn't saying don't judge. Rather, in the context, he meant don't judge others for minor sins in their lives while you have a big sin hanging out of your eye, a plank out of your own eye. Don't be that hypocritical. He says, first take the log out of your own eye, the obvious sin in your own life, and then you can help your brother with the speck in his eye. And we've all dealt with people like this. You know, they're very self-righteous and everything. They can't even see what's going on in their own life. But they're really quick to judge other people. But we are called to judge each other. We just have to do it in the proper way, in a gracious, loving way. So you can't use that excuse. I don't want to be judgmental. Thirdly, some people say, well, who am I to correct someone else? I've got my own issues. Well, that should motivate you to deal with your own issues. Sometimes we're afraid that if we try to talk to a brother or sister in Christ about one of their sins, maybe they're going to point their finger at us. Oh, yeah, well, what about you? Look at you. You have this. You have that. You've said this. You've done that. In our marriage, we call it tit for tat. My wife would bring something up, and I'll say, well, you know what? Yeah, I left my socks around, but uh, you know, what about that curling iron that's always on the, the uh, bathroom counter when you're done with it? You know, tit for tat. You know, we don't like people to point our sins out to us, our faults out to us. I get that. Nobody likes that. And so we think, well, I have to be perfect before I would ever get to the point where I could admonish everyone. But you have to avoid bringing up the other person's sins in hopes that he was, is not going to bring up yours. If you do that, you're never going to address anything. And it just allows perpetual sins to be ongoing. If you're not going to point out sins in each other's lives, then those sins are just being overlooked. They're being swept under the carpet. And you know what? The glory of Christ is suffering as a result. Scripture commands us to confess and to forsake all known sin so that we are clean vessels, right? Ready to be used for the master's use. That's what 2 Timothy 2.21, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work, including the work of admonishing a brother or sister in Christ. 
You don't have to be perfect to admonish the idle or the unruly. Because if that were the case, it would never get done. It's like as a teacher, sometimes you, know, you have to get up and you have to teach on some hard subjects. And there's never any subject harder than one that you're not good at. <laughs> you know, when I have to teach on being patient with people, oh, it's hard. Why? Because I'm not patient with people. Those of you that know me know that very clearly. And so it's hard to, to admit that. Wow. But that doesn't mean you still don't get up and teach on it. You know, if you're looking for a perfect pastor, you're going to be looking a long, long, long time. <laughs> There's definitely none in this church. So you don't have to be perfect to admonish someone else. Third, uh, the, other, the next one here, we need to be tolerant and loving. We hear that a lot from people. Well, we just want to be a loving and tolerant church, and we can't be pointing out other people's faults, and you know, we just have to love them. We just have to love them. Well, there was a philosopher, Alan Bloom, who pointed out 30 years ago, he wrote a book called The Closing of the American Mind, and he says basically that tolerance has become the chief virtue in Western civilization. The most important thing is if you're tolerant. He says, if you call anyone's behavior, no matter how outrageous, evil, or wrong, you're viewed as arrogant and intolerant, and that's only sin. So just don't say anything to anybody. He actually wrote, he said, there is no enemy other than the man who is not open to everything. But you know what? It's not loving to be tolerant of someone else's sin. It's not loving to look into someone else's life and to see something that's hurting them and is an affront to God and not point it out. That's not loving at all. Sin always damages the sinner and those who are sinned against. It always does. Sin destroys Christian families. Worse, When those who profess to be Christians continue in sin, even within the church, it tarnishes God's glory before the world. If we truly love others, if we truly are seeking God's glory in our own lives, we will not be tolerant of other people's sins. We will be intolerant. We will be willing to go and have the hard discussion in love, with grace, but it needs to be done. Next one here, maybe the problem will go away on its own. (laughs) Are you kidding me? There are some times, frankly, when the Holy Spirit does convict a person of their sin without anyone's intervention. And what what do they do? They're led to repentance and they they turn from it and and they turn around and they're doing the right thing. And praise God for his patience, right? Praise God for his grace with us in our imperfection. None of us are perfect in and of ourselves. And there's wisdom. There's wisdom in praying for the person to repent and waiting for the right time to admonish that person about their sin. You don't just do it off the cuff. You know, we're not saying you should be, you know, the admonition police, Grace Bible Church, you know, I'm part of the admonition team. You know, what do you do? I go around and find people's sin and point it out to them. No, we don't need those kind of people here. You know, we do have a Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is perfectly capable of pointing that sin out. But at times, that same Holy Spirit may convict you to say, you know what, you do need to have a talk with your brother or sister in Christ about whatever's going on in their life. Because the idea that, well, maybe the problem would just go away on its own is faulty thinking. 
And then lastly here, maybe the elders or someone else should do it. I'm just not good at it. I don't think any of us are good at this. You know, you, you can't really take a class on this. It's not like you, you follow five rules to admonish someone. Every situation is different. And sometimes the elders should be the ones to admonish the idle or the unruly here. But the general principle, I think, overall, is that if you know the person, if you know them personally, you're going to be a lot more effective admonishing that person if you have a relationship with them than even a pastor or elder who doesn't. So it's contingent upon you to take that responsibility on. If you need help, if you need some coaching, contact us. We'll help you through it. How do you do it and, and, and all that. But it's not loving to distance ourselves from a fellow believer, a brother or sister in Christ, and passively watch him as he continues or her continues in their sin. So we need to overcome these excuses, first of all. And we need to lovingly admonish the unruly or the idle. Well, second point here is to admonish correctly, we need to discern the other person's spiritual condition. This is very important. And to understand what admonition is. To admonish someone correctly, you have to discern the other person's spiritual condition. What do I mean by that? Well, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, he says, we urge you brothers admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, but be patient with them all. What's he saying? Paul's saying, look, one, one shoe doesn't fit everybody here in this situation. One approach doesn't fit everyone. There's different personality makeups. Some people are involved in different kinds of sin. Some of them require more attention than others. Paul identifies the ones who need this admonition by the term idle, or some translations say unruly. Atactus in the original language. It's used often in extra-biblical literature dealing with the military. It refers to a soldier who was out of rank or who acted, behaved in a disorderly way, in a, even an insubordinate way. Idol was often used of those involved in the military to be out of step or out of order, undisciplined, un, unbridled, to act irresponsibly. I remember when I went to <clears throat> Indiana University of Pennsylvania for the two years I was there, I was in ROTC. And I remember the first year I was in ROTC, uh, you know, the first time we went out there and we're still in our blue jeans, we didn't have our uniforms. Everybody thought it was a big joke. You know, the guys said, oh, this would be an easy class, you know, you don't do anything. And uh, it wasn't a joke. And so some of these guys, I remember, they would, you know, we'd, we'd be lined up and we'd be marching and they'd be purposefully, purposefully marching with the wrong foot to try to throw everybody else off. And if, you know, the, the, the drill sergeant said, you know, turn to the right, they would turn to the left. And at first it was kind of funny, like, you know, like Gomer Pyle or something. But after a while, when you started to get a little better at it, it was kind of dangerous because not only were you marching and had uniforms, but you were carrying a gun 
on your shoulder, and if you turn the wrong way, and the other person turned the wrong way, guess what? You might get hit in the face with the barrel of the gun. And then when you disobeyed in that way, there was always push-ups. You know, there was always the push-up. And, and they would never look at the guy that disobeyed to see if he's doing the push-up. And he was a clown anyway, so usually he's just laying on his stomach. And then when the drill sergeant would look over, he'd be pushing. But he wasn't doing anything. It was so frustrating. Got away with it. It wasn't me. (laughs) But I think it's important that this is what this verse means. I think Paul here is, is really referring to those because of what's he been talking about through 1 Thessalonians. He's been talking about the coming of Christ, right? He's been talking about, boy, this church at Thessalonica has to get ready. Christ is coming back. Either it's for the rapture or his second coming. He's coming back soon. And some of the people within this young church, in their immature way, began to think, hey, if Jesus is coming back, guess what? I don't need to do anything. I'm just going to become idle. I'm going to become undisciplined. I'm going to become unruly. And just sit here and do absolutely nothing and wait for the Lord's return. He kind of refers to that back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. He says, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your own hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. He had some of these guys who were so eager for Christ to return, they just thought, wow, he's coming back next week, so I'm not going to work this week. What do I need to work for? You know, when we have church, they'll feed us. Sometimes we have people visit our church, and sometimes we tell them we have a lunch every week after the service. Every week? Yep, every week. Wow. (laughs) And you wonder, okay, when they come back, are are they coming back for the food? Physical food or spiritual food? You kind of just wonder sometimes. But it's important that here these these people within the the church at Thessalonica were kind of sponging off the rest of the church. They were taking advantage of people because they quit their jobs. They became lazy and idle. It even refers to them as being undisciplined and and all kinds of things going on here. And he, he... addresses them directly in 2 Thessalonians. Turn over to chapter 3, verses 6 and 12. Listen to what he says to them. He says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. The same word. They're walking in in an undisciplined way and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. In other words, we were disciplined. Verse 8, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you. Verse 9, it was not because we do not have that right, as an apostle, Paul was saying, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you, there you are, walk in idleness. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. (laughs) Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So you had people who were walking in idleness 
in a way that was unbecoming the Lord. They were taking advantage of people within this church, and Paul had to point it out. Not only that, but he encouraged them to point it out. He says, don't be busybodies. Maybe some of these folks bought into the idea that 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 2 talks about, where they, were, they believed falsely that the day of the Lord had already come. And maybe they thought, well, what's the use now? So their disobedience probably went beyond even not working. They were maybe spreading stuff within the church that was toxic to the environment of the church. They were basically out of line in their Christian lives. And we've all been there. We all go there at times. But that's where this admonition is so important. You have a brother or sister come alongside of you and say, hey, I don't know if you noticed this, but here's what I'm seeing. We first need to determine whether the other person, where they're at spiritually. If they're a faint-hearted person or if they're weak spiritually, maybe they don't need admonition. Maybe they need some encouragement. Maybe they need some help. If they're spiritually immature, we need to be gentle with our instruction in how they should live for the Lord. I mean, remember when your children were young and you needed to discern whether they were acting immature or whether they were actually being defiant to your authority as a parent. Big difference, right? I mean, if a three-year-old is acting like a three-year-old, whether they're kicking and screaming, whatever, if they're hungry, it doesn't matter. I mean, they're just acting like a three-year-old. But if you have a 10-year-old that's acting like a three-year-old, then we got a problem. Or sometimes I would even say, if we have an adult that's acting like a three-year-old, then we got a real problem. You need to make it very clear to those children they can't do that. That's off bounds. Even if they're tired or hungry, it doesn't matter. So before you admonish another person, you try to gauge where they're at in their walk with Christ. Ask some questions to discern their spiritual condition. Maybe they're not even a Christian, but you have an expectation of them to live as a Christian. That's very wrong. Well, secondly here, to admonish correctly, you have to understand what admonition is. For Paul, when he says helping the idle... It doesn't involve some complex methodology or sophisticated psychological test that he put them through. No. He basically says other believers were to come alongside them and admonish them. That word admonish has a a warning to it. The idea of you're warning somebody has the meaning that connotes putting sense into someone's head. Someone's not thinking clearly. Someone's not living clearly. You come alongside of them in love and in a gracious way and point this out. Or maybe it's alerting them of the serious consequences for their actions. We see this throughout Scripture. In Acts chapter 20, verse 31, it says, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years, he says, I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. All right, he was, he was doing this night and day. Or 1 Corinthians 4.14, Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to what? To admonish you as my beloved children. You can see Paul's sense of, of kind of fatherhood to these people. 
In Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, it says, Him we proclaim, speaking of Christ, but then he says, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we all may present everyone mature in Christ. See, that's the goal here. This word in the original language, nutheo, it does not mean to bring judgment. It does not mean being judgmental or being critical in some superior, self-righteous way. Rather, it's, it carries the kind of a warning against danger because you're really concerned for that person. When Paul gave the Ephesian elders there that we just read in Acts 20, 31, that warning... He sought to bring the same warning to the Thessalonians. To admonish basically means to strongly encourage, to correct, to warn someone or, or to uh, warn someone to change from behavior that is wrong to potentially or potentially wrong in the scriptures to behavior that is right. Uh, it's related to the, the word for mind. It involves inserting knowledge, understanding, instruction with the view toward correction. You don't just point out their sin and then say, okay, have a nice day. That's not admonishing someone. But it's also an appeal to the will, to the feelings, not just to the intellect. So there's some passion involved in this. There's some compassion involved in this as well. The intensity of of our appeal to the person needs to be in the proportion to the level of danger. You know, sometimes people have sins in their life that come to the surface and you point it out to them and it's not that big of a deal. And at other times, you know, someone's in a little boat going over Niagara Falls. You don't want to be going, hey, um, you might want to jump out of the boat (laughs) or you're going to die. No. You would be like, hey, stop, wait, get out of there. You know, you're you're in danger. There would be some, some, some urgency to what you're sharing with them. And every situation's different. Every situation's different. It's crucial that you use the Bible and not your own opinion when you admonish someone. I heard a guy one day said, You know, in my opinion, looking at pornography is spiritually dangerous. And another person in the group said, Well, Thank you for your opinion, but in my opinion, everybody does it, so what's the problem? See where opinions get you? Nowhere. But if you take the person to Matthew 5 and point out verses 27 to 30 where Jesus says that, you know what? If you don't take radical measures to rid your life of sin, whether it's lust, whatever it is, you're really headed to hell. It has a lot more clout than your opinion does. When you admonish someone who is idle or unruly, you should expect resistance. You don't go into a a meeting to admonish someone going, oh, I just know they're going to give me a big hug after I share this with them. No. They're going to point their finger at you. How dare you? You know, it's going to be an affront to them. But that doesn't mean you don't do it. But you have to use the word of God. You should expect resistance. Often the person is straying from the Lord. Often that person will be very defensive. Why? Because they don't want to face their own sin. 
They don't want someone pointing out to them their sin in their life. So they'll be defensive. Sometimes they'll blame others. Or they'll blame the circumstances they're in. Why? Because he doesn't want to admit who's responsible. See, the devil didn't make you do it. You're responsible when you sin. You and you alone. I remember when we first got married, probably one of the, well, not the only, but I noticed I had a temper <laughs> about certain things. And I'd always be pointing at my wife saying, you're the reason. <laughs> and finally, a counselor said, no, she's not the reason. <laughs> I get what you're doing, but that's blame shifting. You're the reason. And it became very clear to me one time, we were in an argument and the phone rang. Hello. Oh, sure. Oh, yes. I'd love to come by for a visit. Yes. Bye. Okay. God bless you too. What were you talking about? You know, can you control it? Yes, you can control it. We can all control it. You don't blame the other person for it. Right? I mean, it's just silly. And so we have to be aware of that. One way to diffuse tension when you're responding, when you're, when, you're, when you're admonishing someone and they're responding with maybe a bunch of questions about you, I mean, you know, you could say something like this. Are you telling me before God that you're not looking at pornography? Or do you think that he approves of your behavior? So you take it out of the, the realm of opinion or what you think and you put it in the realm of what God thinks about whatever it is. But no matter how gently, how carefully you confront the sinning person, it's easy to come across as being harsh and judgmental. You just have to know that. That's why we don't like to do it. We may have the best intentions in the world when we're admonishing somebody, but they're not going to take it that way. So how can we admonish the unruly, the idol, without condemning him? Thirdly, to admonish others, we need to be prayerful. We need to be humble, we need to be Christ-like, and we need to have knowledge of his word. This is very important. Talk to God much about the person you're going to admonish before you ever talk to the person about God. Please do that. And like I said before, if you're eager to admonish people, you probably shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> you should wait. You should spend more time in prayer. And when you finally meet that person, then you'll be able to say, you know what, brother or sister, I've been praying for you a lot lately because you have been. And I'm really concerned about this or that. That's going to be received a lot better than just going up to somebody and saying, hey, I noticed this sin in your life and I'm going to point it out to you. Nobody likes that. So be prayerful. Be humble. Don't come down on the other person as if you, you live some sinless life and walk on water. you can't understand why they're sinning. Why are you doing this? I mean, we're all prone to temptation, are we not? Just as other people, we're all prone to temptation. I mean, the next time around, maybe he'll be admonishing you. Paul instructs in Galatians 6, 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then he says this, keep watch on yourself, lest you also be tempted. None of us are beyond temptation. 
You know, we look at some sins in other people's lives and we say, I would never do that. You should never say that because you don't know. You're perfectly capable of it. You have the same sin nature they do. Don't put yourself too, too, too high. Be prayerful, be humble, be Christ-like, thirdly. That's what he says there, you are, who are spiritual, you who walk in the Spirit, who are displaying the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, Paul is talking about. What, are, what, are the fruit, what is the fruit of the Spirit? And by the way, I know I say this every time, but it's so important. It's not the fruits of the Spirit, like it's some big basket of fruit. Which one do you want? Well, today maybe I'll take a little self-control with a side of faithfulness. No. That text says it's the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. What is it? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. And admonition normally should be bathed in patience. It should be bathed in kindness. It should be bathed in gentleness. Sometimes we have people come up and they'll, they'll be very eager to apply church discipline within our church to someone's life. And we always practice patience with that. Now sometimes Jesus did confront his disciples. He confronted them bluntly and he confronted them forcefully. Remember in Matthew 16, 23, Peter well, Lord, I never do this. And what does he say to Peter, one of the apostles? He says, get behind me, Satan. Wow. How would you like to rebuke, be rebuked like that by the Lord? You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. That came out of the Lord's mouth. Get behind me, Satan. Speaking to one of his own followers. The apostle Paul, filled with the Spirit, talking about a magician who was trying to turn the proconsul in Cyprus away from the faith in Acts 13, verses 10 to 11. Here's what he said. He says, you are, you are full of deceit. You are full of all deceit and fraud. You are the son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness. Will you not cease to make crooked the ways, straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. So there is a place where your admonition has to be strong. It has to be direct. But it's also, it's easy to operate in the flesh. Not the spirit. And so you should always have a default toward being patient, toward being kind, toward being gentle with people. Fourthly here, to admonish others, you have to know God's word, especially if it relates to the problem at hand. You don't want to go in there with your opinion. Well, you know, I don't think you should be coloring your hair. I don't, that offends me. I don't, chapter verse. I mean, we come up with the most ridiculous things sometimes within the church. You want to appeal to God's authority, not your own opinion. And to do that, you have to know what God's authority is. You have to know his word. And if you can point out a verse to somebody and say, you know, brother, it says this. We shouldn't have any part of this. Here's why I'm saying this. Here's what God's word says. 
You want to offer not only rebuke and correction to someone you're admonishing, but also what? Training in righteousness. How are you going to do that? You're going to do that, 2 Timothy 3.16. It's good for training in righteousness, the word of God. You need to offer practical biblical help for how the person can gain victory over their sin. You don't just go in there and judge them and say, you're worthless, what are you doing, you idiot, and send them off. No, you, you want them to understand, yeah, the gravity of their sin, but you also want to understand there's hope in Christ. That they don't have to give in to this. Your aim is never to prove that the sinning person is wrong and leave him feeling guilty, but rather to help him turn from his sin and be restored to the Lord. So to admonish others biblically, we need to overcome our excuses. We need to discern the other person's spiritual condition, understand what biblical admonition is. We need to be prayerful, humble, Christ-like, knowledge of God's word. And finally, the last thing here quickly, to admonishing others, we must be passionate, personal, persistent, purposeful, and preventive. These are very quick. To admonishing others, we have to be passionate. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 20, 31, 20, 31, he says, therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day, listen to this, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. I mean, my patience would have long run out after two months admonishing someone. Three years, he said he did. And he did it with tears, not frustration. His tears showed how much he cared for them. 1 Corinthians 4.14, it says, I don't write these things to you to shame you, but to admonish you as dear children. I mean, if you know a brother or sister who's in sin, and you just shrug your shoulders, and you just say, well, whatever, it's their life. They'll pay the consequences. Make your bed lay in it, whatever. You're not a loving brother or sister in Christ. I'm sorry. So you have to have some passion there. You also have to be personal. Notice, he says, each one. Paul says that we admonish each one. Colossians 1.28 sums up his approach to ministry. He says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. There, yeah, is there a place for admonishing a whole group of people? Obviously. That's what preaching is all about. But sometimes the sermon goes right over the person's head. Because their head's so filled and their heart's so filled with sin. They're not going to get it until someone who personally knows them sits down and talks to them about the problem that they have. So it's personal. It's also persistent. We said he's there for three years admonishing the Ephesian elders night and day. This means he did it over and over and over again. What does this say? It says don't give up. You know, it's not like you just go to that person one time and say, okay, yeah, you know, I, I pointed out their drinking problem and, you know, that's their problem now. I'm never going to bring it up again. No, that's not what admonition is. Admonition is really concerned for that person. I mean, it doesn't mean you nag them and hound them and follow them around, but it also means you don't give up on the first try. Fourthly, be purposeful. What's the purpose of this? To be, bring them complete in Christ, mature in Christ. And it's also preventative. That's implied in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. It should happen through preaching, but it should also happen personally as we admonish each other within 
the church. I mean, maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, well, doesn't the Bible say something about love? And Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. So isn't it easier just to turn your head the other way? And or 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitudes of sin. Proverbs 19, 11 says, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook a transgression. Does this mean you just overlook it? You just act like it's not there? It can't mean that. Because Paul in other places encourages us to bring up transgressions. If a person needs to grow up, you, you should gently come alongside of them and help them see where they need to grow. Or if a person is has inadvertently offended you in some way sometimes you you may need to just absorb it and move on but if it's a repeating pattern well then you need to address it but if they're violating God's word they need to be admonished so that it doesn't reap the consequences of sin it's pretty clear don't be quarrelsome, be kind, teach God's word, be patient, be, be gentle. Pray for God to grant repentance to that person who needs admonishment. But do it. Admonish them. It's a ministry that we all want to avoid, but it's a vital ministry for the spiritual health of the church and God's people. So we need to be doing that. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, this is something we don't run to. Usually we don't like to do. Uh, we, we always feel inadequate admonishing another brother or sister in Christ. But Lord, it's, it's a command from you that we do this. And we do it in a, in a rightful way. We do it in a way that's honoring to you, not in a judgmental way that looks down our spiritual noses at, at lesser people. That's, that's not where we're at. We're all on the same plane. We are all sinners saved by your grace. We all need your help, your assistance to live this Christian life each and every day. And so, Father, we trust you to carry out this ministry within our church through the lives of the people that make up this church. And, Father, we thank you for your work. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the fellowship that we share together as the body of Christ. And, Lord, we pray that we would understand how to live lives that cause people to stop and to look and to say, wow, what is different about that church? What is different about that person? Where they can see the light, the love of Christ shine out from our lives so that they too can come to know Christ. Lord, if there's any here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray that you would do that work. It's not a work that we can do. Lord, you need to point out to them, convict them of their sin before a holy God. Give them the understanding to cry out to you, a loving God who desires a relationship with them based upon the love and sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary. He, he went to the cross as a perfect person, yet he took upon himself all of the sins of all those who would put their faith or trust in him. And when he died and he rose again, he forgave us of our sin. He covered our sin. He took them away as far as the east is from the west. 
And we all acknowledge our sin in our lives. We all have things that we've done that are sinful before you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would draw that one to you as only you can. And for believers here, I just pray that you would encourage us as we are part of this church to not run from this ministry of admonishing each other. But Lord, embrace it and to do it in a, in a God-honoring way. Father, we thank you. We pray for our food across the way as we're dismissed now, that you would just bless our fellowship and bless the food to our bodies. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen, amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>